You are listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, the Belfast Telegraph's one-stop shop for everything Ulster Rugby. I'm Adam McKendry, back in the host chair this week. I'm going to start actually with a listener question from LJ King, straight out the bath, uh, where he asks, is Gareth Hanna really not coming back? First of all, I am trying not to take that as like a personal insult to my hosting style, but uh, it's very hard not to. That Gareth hopefully will be back at some point, but as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, he has moved on to a new role within the Belfast Telegraph. So it looks like it's going to be myself moving forward. Hopefully that doesn't turn too many of you off, but I'm sure Gareth will be back at some point. We'll have him on as a special guest, I'm sure. But in the meantime, it is myself moving forward with this and joining me this week, as always, is my colleague, Jonathan Bradley. How are you, John? I'm good. How are you, Adam? How are you? I am keeping very busy at the moment, a lot to a lot to be done between Northern Ireland and Ulster and the Belfast Giants, but glad to be back podcasting again this week. I should mention, yes, we do apologise we weren't on last week, a lot to be done, uh, or a lot to be dealt with, uh, with Gareth moving on, but we are back, we will be back weekly from here on out, which is good. How did you find the weekend, Johnny? Were you, I, I assume you were rather busy after everything that went on? <laughs> Yeah, I just watched a lot of rugby really, like on Saturday. There was an awful lot of games to watch on Saturday, so that was pretty much me. Um that was the height of my the height of my Saturday anyway. I thought I found myself watching the Sharks Edinburgh game straight after the Ulster game, and I thought to myself, at some point I'm gonna get bored of all these South African games because I was watching the Lions Ospreys game as well. And then it it just dawned on me like for the rest of the season, this is going to be every single weekend of kind of plotting my weekend around rugby matches. The uh, the early kickoff of the South African games is a good one. Get get that one o'clock game in. Yeah, it only just occurred to me though, like that's three o'clock in the afternoon for them, which makes infinitely more sense from a kickoff perspective. But I was thinking like one o'clock is would not be like the height of the day. It would have been absolutely sweltering down there in Cape Town, I'm sure. And absolutely pelting it down in Durban. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Solster, I'm sure, will be a lot happier they were in Cape Town than Durban uh, per Edinburgh. Although, probably suited Edinburgh, right down to the ground, actually. <laughs> I would say so. Certainly the way the game ended up, anyway. We will focus on issues in Cape Town instead of Durban. And... I think one of the things that we've got to start with is some breaking news as we are recording, which is an interview that came out over the weekend from Supersport in South Africa with URC head of officials, Tappy Henning. Um, But in the interview, which was done on their final whistle program, which is essentially their their roundup of the weekend's action, Henning essentially admitted, not essentially, he did admit that Ulster's try should have stood. We all know the try that we're talking about, but... If you, uh, if you didn't see the game at the weekend, Ulster obviously falling to a 23-20 defeat to the Stormers at DHL Stadium. But they thought they had one. It was two minutes to go when Callum Reid went over. However, it was ruled out by referee Jean-Luc Anecki and TMO Quentin Immelman. But I'll just read you out the quotes from uh, Tappy Henning very quickly just about uh, what he saw and how he felt the decision should have been made. He said on final whistle, what's hugely important here is the referee is awarded a try and it is during the process of the conversion kick that there's additional information now visible. So now we're looking for an infringement to overturn the referee's original decision of try. There was no conclusive evidence. There was an infringement of a knock-on. So the original decision should stand. That's the important bit. There has to be conclusive evidence that the ball goes from his hand forward to overturn the on-field decision and that's not there. So it is a try. Uh, he does go on discuss it a bit more in detail. And he also, which I find very interesting, was he discussed the sort of process of looking back at referees' performances and how they assess referees and maybe if they feel like they need to take a step down, uh, what happens then and how, how they approach that. But just based on that, very clearly saying that Ulster's try should have stood. Johnny, your initial reaction to the try, or the, the non-try, as, as I suppose we should refer to it as, do you think it should have stood? Yeah. Um, at the time, I suppose I didn't really see the knock-on in the first instance. It was only when Burns was lined up the conversion that you sort of realised that there was any issue with it. And then 
even on replay, similar to Alan O'Connor, and I know there's myriad things going on with this try and going on in this play, but for me, the most important thing was it looked like in the process of putting the ball on the line, Callum Reed's hand didn't leave the ball. I'm, I'm actually going to disagree. I thought there was enough separation to say that there was. Your TV must be better than mine. <laughs> we have just got a new TV at my house, so <laughs> maybe it is. I, I thought I thought there was enough. I thought whenever the ball came loose, there was, like, I, I understand. I, I have seen videos from other people where, um, I know Wayne Barnes did one on YouTube where he showed, like, if the ball rolls down the person and they apply pressure, like, say, say it goes from their hand and rolls down onto their torso and they apply pressure with their torso, it's still a try. I thought there was enough separation between the hand and the ball or, or between Reed's body and the ball that... It, it wasn't a try in the traditional sense of he just reaches over and puts it down. My bigger question was whether it was a knock-on and then whether Diamani coming in to try and dislodge the ball was a knock-on from his perspective or not. Yeah, I think I was obviously Ulster's maybe secondary complaints, their tertiary complaints having been that um, the guy was offside as well. So it was... <laughs> Oh, I missed that uh, one. I didn't realize they were complaining for offside. I didn't hear that. Yeah, they were saying he was offside as well. So it should have been a penalty try because he was offside. Well, this was what Ulster were saying anyway, that he was offside in the act of, uh, I was going to say making the tackle, but also didn't think it was a tackle either. Making the intervention, they said that he was, or they felt that he was offside. So fair to say they were not happy. Personally, I don't think even Di- Diamani's going for a deliberate knock on. I-, I think of it. It is a deliberate knock-on if he's the one to knock it on, but I don't think he is specifically going to try and dislodge the ball. I think it's just a weird kind of tackle technique. Um, But it's such an interesting call because if it goes Ulster's way, I think the Stormers will complain that the try wasn't disallowed for a knock-on. And if, uh, as we all know, the Stormers get the decision and Dan McFarland saying in, a, in his post-game quotes that he doesn't understand how it's not a try and in his head they, they won that game. Um, Donal O'Reilly very, very cleverly says who wants to see the captain's challenge back. Uh, nobody wants to see the captain's challenge back. I think I speak for everybody when I say that, but I also think Alan O'Connor essentially brought the captain's challenge back on himself or by himself by essentially badgering the referee into looking at it for a second time because they, the referee and the TMO seemed very happy with their decision until O'Connor kept pointing out that Diamani hit it with his hand. <laughs> yeah, like that was actually, that was my question to Alan O'Connor in the post-match of surely whenever the referee went back to look at it a second time, you thought that it was going to be a try because if they were sure in what they were saying in the first instance, why would Alan O'Connor's pressing, would they have gone back um, to look at it again and I guess he, he was just even more amused than he had been at the start after that had happened and um, his quotes themselves were interesting because basically his frustration stemmed from the fact that he didn't feel like he was being listened to because he could only hear half the conversation so the TMO was telling the referee things that Alan O'Connor couldn't hear and were not being relayed to him as the captain so he obviously felt in a fairly difficult position and I think well everyone can see his frustration at the time and then for that line out that he stole I think he jumped about three feet in the air so he must have uh, <laughs> channeled the frustration in the right way at least but um, a bit of an interesting point there actually because we've seen actually in the Premiership where some games you've had the TMO what he's saying being relayed into the stadium that's probably a situation actually where it would have been very good for Alan O'Connor to be able to hear what the TMO was saying, or maybe for there to be a little bit better communication between the referee and Alan O'Connor so that he was getting both sides of the conversation. Well, I've said before on this podcast and I've written before in columns that there is absolutely no reason why what is being said by the TMO should not be heard in the stadium. And it's an affront basically to people that are paying for tickets that they're asked to pay another 15 euro to be able to hear what people are sat watching on TV can hear. Um, but I admit that I had not thought about thought about this element of it before, that uh, the captain can't hear what the TMO is saying in instances when 
it certainly seems like the TMO is the one taking the lead ahead of the referee. Which I felt was also another interesting aspect to it. I really felt like the referee was, or, sorry, I really felt like the TMO was kind of skirting around the referee's questions. He kept seeming to focus on the fact that Reed had dropped the ball and there was this issue of separation, whereas the referee kept very specifically asking, did the Stormers player knock it on? And he was kind of looking for the angle of, was it a restart with an Ulster scrum or was it a restart with a Stormer scrum, which obviously would have made a massive difference given that the Stormers then walked over Ulster scrum to win the penalty to clear. But the TMO seemed very set in his decision whenever the referee was asking him for his opinion. And the referee was asking, was it a knock-on by Damani? And the TMO just kept talking about Callum Reed and the separation between body and ball. So there even seemed to be a bit of a disconnect between the referee and the TMO and what they were trying to decide. So um, I suppose that brings us on to another listener question that we got from Big Jim, um, where he asks, does the refereeing setup in the league need to change? Home country officials are increasingly getting accusations of bias in some actions. Should there be a change to protect the officials and the reputation of the league? And just before I get your thoughts on it, Johnny, I think that's probably where it'd be good if uh, if you want to go back and read on the Belfast Telegraph website what Tapa Henning said uh, whenever you look at the, the review process that they go through and uh, how he approaches chatting to the referee and the TMO about about their process and how he then tries to pinpoint flaws in their process based on what they've told him. Um, but Johnny, I, I know you, you're bound to have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I think those quotes actually were very interesting in regards to that because the idea that it takes five to seven years, essentially, to get a referee up to, uh, up to that standard really sort of puts into context what the league is up against now. Obviously, we're looking at this through the prism of something that's gone against Ulster this weekend. But it is worth remembering as well that when we're talking about these things, like Craig Gilroy got a yellow card in a game against Scarlets that was then later judged that it should have been a red card. Simon Zebo was given a red card against Ulster and it was later judged that that should have been, I believe, no card at all was uh, what they decided in the end. So, you know, we're only three months into the year 2022 and there's three big potentially game-changing incidents that have happened in Ulster games just refereeing mistakes by what the the people that are in charge of the officiating have said and, and it's not even big decisions as well it's even like the wee smaller decisions if you think back to that Mike Adamson performance uh Harlequins against cast where it really was felt that Cass should have gotten at least one penalty towards the end, which would have allowed them to win the game. So it's not even the big decisions that some people are questioning. Yeah, exactly. And then you talk about, again, from those from those quotes there, you know, you're talking about like how many mistakes does a referee have to make before they're sort of demoted for their own good, as it were. And like, um, you know, this is sort of the second really controversial incident that, this referee has been involved in this season after the uh, Glasgow non-try against the Lions back at the start of the season. So all of that being said, I think that idea really puts it into context. You know, that idea of, well, it takes five to seven years to get a referee up to the standard that we need them at. So it's not like they're growing on trees. It's not, there's no ready-made fix if you think that you have a problem with a number of your referees because it's not like there are five referees stood there waiting that are going to be better than them coming in. Mm, because Henning made a point in that panel where he was saying, you know, it's kind of like players where, you know, you, you review them and if you don't think they're performing well, then you drop them down to, to the next level. So they build up their confidence again, they build up their level and then you bring them back up. But not in the same way as players is that whenever you drop a player down, there are many players to bring up in their place. With referees, there is a very limited pool to choose from. It, it's not like you replace an Italian referee with, for example, a Welsh referee or an Irish referee with a Scottish referee because you've got to have the same pool of referees from the same country in order to 
have neutral referees in charge of games. I I don't have a problem with the TMO being South African because there's limited resources. You you cannot start flying out officials to South Africa to be TMOs because from a cost perspective, that is not worth it. And from a logistics perspective, it's not worth it either. You know, these officials are not going out there to deliberately make decisions against teams because they know rightly that if they do make decisions like that, then they will be demoted. It's it's not like they're making these decisions. They think, well, I, I'm going to get away with this. Whenever they make decisions, they are subject to review. Henning is the guy who calls to them and asks them, look, why did you make this decision that way? And if he's not satisfied with the response, as he says, they will be demoted and someone else will come up in their place. The, the pool isn't that thin that they're immune from being dropped. It, it will happen. So I, I think that there's, there is a limit to how much you can mitigate against having home officials. But at some point, you've got to accept that this is a league that is played across hemispheres and across nations there are going to be areas where you will have to deal with officials from the country that you're in. For the most part, the URC does have neutral referees and the referees at the end of the day are the ones who make the majority of the decisions. So from that regard, I don't think there's too much to like Ulster didn't complain that it was a South African TMO. They just complained that they thought the officials got the decision wrong. There was no complaints from Ulster as to the the nation that that the TMO was from. No, and I think if you look at those quotes, and I know we're leaning heavily on this, these quotes here, but if you look at them, the big error comes in the first instance from the referee because the question is not asked in terms of the on-field decision. So the on-field decision was a try. The referee's question should have been, should have been framed around the fact that he had awarded the try, so conclusive evidence was required that it was not a try and it wasn't conclusive evidence. So... That is the main thing, I suppose. And like in a way, we don't know how it would have panned out had that question been asked. So we don't know what the TMO would have said if he had been asked, is there conclusive evidence that a try has not been scored? And that's an intriguing element of all this as well. I suppose we better talk about the rest of the game. There was 78 other minutes that were played before that try was scored or was not scored, apparently. Um, Ulster, obviously coming away with the defeat, but so many different aspects to this game that you could approach it from. You know, Ulster down 14-0 after six minutes. They're in Cape Town in conditions that they're not familiar to. So coming back to only lose by three points against a very good Stormer side, it on the face of it probably looks like a good result. And even if you look at it without knowing anything that went on in the context of the game, you would probably say a three point defeat to a team like the Stormers is a good result. But whenever you consider how well Ulster played in that second half up to the try line, you're probably coming away thinking that was a disappointing result. And then whenever you throw in the disallowed try, you're thinking even more. So that's a disappointing result. Johnny, where do you fall in that spectrum of many different options I gave you there, do you think Ulster are coming away happy enough they've got a point? Are they disappointed that they don't have all four points? Where do you stand? I would say Ulster are probably angry that they didn't get all four points because of the referee. I think when they come to review the game, they'll be disappointed that they were in a position that they needed that try because, you know, Ulster probably should have scored at least two tries before that and also gave the Stormers a 14-point head start off the back of things that they will have really zeroed in on all week in preparation to not do. So, you know, don't give them a chance to counterattack. And that was what led to Ulster being 7-0 down after three minutes, despite the fact that the Stormers had only had one possession or... If you take that first six minute chunk of the game out, you know, the Stormers only scored three penalties thereafter in a game that also dominated to the tune of plus 60% possession and plus 60% territory. So it shouldn't have been a close game if Ulster had taken more of their chances or if 
they had have started the game better than we're talking about this non-try in the same way that we were talking about the one against uh, Cardiff a few weeks ago of where it was just something academic that was more, um, obviously in that instance, they were concerned because <laughs> they thought it was the try of the season, but um, not something that would have had any consequence on the game. I've got to say, but before we go on and talk a little bit about Ulster, I was really disappointed in how the Stormers played because I thought once they got, what was it, 23-13 up in that second half, and to be honest, pretty much all of the second half, I thought they played so defensively. Like, give credit to Ulster. You know, they, they kept hold of the ball and they dominated territory. But I thought the Stormers were very happy just to get rid of the ball and let Ulster come to them. I didn't really feel like there was much endeavor or enthusiasm for them to go and try and kill the game off, especially in a period of the game sort of going into that third quarter where you thought that in conditions familiar to them, that they were going to maybe be the ones to pull away, that they would have the extra pair of legs or they they would just be a little bit more at home. But it, it just felt like they were very much trying to defend their 10 point lead as opposed to trying to kill the game off. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I did think that was strange given how many points we've seen them rack up against admittedly inferior opposition over the last um, number of weeks that they, I thought went into the shell quite a bit. They were making an awful lot of mistakes. Obviously the knock on um, in their own and goal area, probably being the most heinous among those that went unpunished because they actually got the scrum penalty on Ulster's feed. But, I mean, that's the, how they had some standout performances. Evan Roos uh, really foremost among those. But I think you were looking at that 14-0 lead and sort of your mind was starting to wander back to those 63 points that the Cheetahs put on Ulster a few years back. And then the rest of the game just didn't materialise in that way. Like, the Stormers didn't do an awful lot thereafter. There was... Obviously, a difference of opinion at the breakdown between what the Stormers were getting away with and what Ulster thought they weren't getting away with. But, I mean, in terms of what they really brought to the piece after scoring those two tries, it was just their strong defensive work more than anything that we saw from them in attack, which I think was what had excited us about watching them and what we were expecting to see from them. I think it was notable that all five Premier Sports analysts before the game I think have both sides scoring at least 20 points. And I think Stephen Ferris had it finishing 45-36 or something like that. So I was panicking. I was I was on live. The tallies that we've seen the South African sides rack up on these hard tracks that they've uh, been playing on now that they're finally able to uh, get a run out on home soil. And I think we thought that that's the kind of, the kind of game that would have suited Ulster if they had been able to play it as well. But... Um, you know, Ulster probably had the chances to rack up that sort of tally, but uh, the Stormers, not really. I was panicking on the live blog because if we had scores like that, I would have been doing an update a minute. And that's mm. that's a lot of work, I can assure you. What, what was your take on the breakdown? Like, I, I thought Dion Furry had a very good game for the Stormers. He seemed to rule the roost uh, in the back row for them. And I was surprised they brought him off so early. Maybe it was the fact that they allowed him to gas himself out by attacking every single breakdown and winning turnovers. But given that Ulster have been quite good at the breakdown in, in recent weeks with Marcus Ray, and I thought Nick Timoney was probably quite a big loss in that back row, but even Dwayne Vermeulen's a guy who's quite good in, at the breakdown at number eight, it just seemed like an area that Ulster just didn't target in the first few minutes and the Stormers saw an opportunity and took it. Yeah, like I said, I do think there was a struggle to come to terms with what the referee was looking for there. Um, there were certainly a few that I thought were refereed somewhat curiously, shall we say. Both ones that went against Ulster and went for the Stormers. But I think it's that, for me, is probably the main area that needs cleaned up and it's an area where Ulster really have been particularly good sort of since November really like you think back to their performance at the breakdown in that Leinster game in the RDS and it's somewhere where allied with the emergence of Marcus Ray and his breakdown work it's been an area where Ulster made real gains in those last couple of months but somewhere where they were definitely bested here and that I think played a huge part in not only the start but in the Stormers being able to 
denial start the points that you would have looked at their opportunities and looked at the uh as I say the possession and the territory that they hadn't thought that they might have scored. Do you think Ulster will regret not taking the kicks at goal in the second half or because I, for me you can look at it two ways one if they take their kicks at goal potentially they win that 26 uh 23 but also maybe they don't control the possession and territory quite so much maybe the stormers get a good kickoff and they get the ball back and they get a bit of uh, possession in the ulster 22 so it's, it's kind of similar to this discussion that we had about ireland a few weeks ago and the france game do you take your points or do you go for the corner and We've seen Ulster throughout the season constantly going for the corner. It does seem to be this Irish tactic now of you really try and put the foot down on the throat. But I wonder if at some point it ever crossed their minds, maybe we should start taking the points here and trying to win this the the old-fashioned way. I think the thing about narratives like that is you then have to take four points off for every try that's scored after going to the corner. So like Ulster's not directly off the mall, but like also his first try was the product of the mall. Mark Robson's always very quick on the stat of um, just how many of their scores do come from the mall. So it is one of those, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Like also our team that backs their mall, they are a team that scores an awful lot of tries off their mall. So I suppose on the rare occasions that they lose, we are going to look at them and be like, oh, well, you know, you could have had X amount of points by kicking there, but you do have to factor in all those points over the course of the season that they would lose. How many of Robbo's mall stats have made it into your match reports down the year? How many of Robbo's stats in general make it into match reports? <laughs> because um, he's a he's a man that always has as he, <laughs> a man that always has the numbers close to hand and the kind of numbers that uh, really do make a match report sing. You know, just before we move on from events in Cape Town, because we know that Ulster have already moved on to Pretoria and a meeting with the Bulls, but someone that uh, I'm sure we are all delighted to see back on a rugby pitch was Luke Marshall. He came on late in the second half, had one great break, um, had a had another sort of surge on the other side of the pitch as well, but one, one really good inside break that took play into the 22. Long old road for him. He hasn't played since November 2020. Uh, but to make his return, I think, is just a boost for everyone in the squad, to be honest, to see someone who's worked so hard behind the scenes finally get rewarded with uh, with another game. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, To think that he's played four games in the past two years, basically, well, more than two years now, since uh, it'll be 25 months since uh, the first lockdown came in. Is a, it's just an incredibly long time and has required an incredible amount of resolve, I think, to come through the other end. Like, he obviously has been busy, as anyone who saw him on Instagram uh, during the week will know. He's clearly not missed too many gym sessions while he's been injured, but um, to get back onto the, uh, onto the pitch, back playing at a high level, must have just been such a huge thing for him, even though obviously the result didn't go Ulster's way. And it, it can be a big boost for Ulster moving forward because I think maybe even myself when I was looking at this last week, like it is easy to forget that he's only 31 years old. It, it feels like he's been around for so long. Like it, it feels like years since that Heineken Cup quarterfinal down at the Aviva Stadium where he came on off the bench and scored a try. For, for someone like that to come back in, you, you think about Ulster's centers at the moment and in fact I'll, I'll bring in a question now that i was going to bring in later um it's another one from donald where he asks what do you read into the players not brought to south africa and he specifically mentions angus curtis as someone who has impressed this season but didn't get selected to go on the tour but you think about ulster center options which were good before you factored in luke marshall but you now have Stuart mccluskey james hume luke marshall uh Stuart Murr, Angus Curtis, Ben Moxham can play centre. Will Addison, whenever he comes back from injury, can play centre. You've got Jude Postlewaite and Ben Carson doing so well for the under-20s. Like, Ulster have so many players in that centre, and you wonder where, especially if you're Luke Marshall and you're coming back from injury and you look at all the guys who are impressing in your absence, where he thought he actually factored back in so to so to come back in and be trusted to actually play in a game like that, which was probably one of the biggest games of uh, of Ulster's season so far in South Africa, that must be a massive boost for him 
from a mental perspective that Ulster gave him that opportunity, but it also must be massive for Ulster. Like we, we heard Dan McFarlane talking last week about how Marshall is a spiritual leader within that squad. So I'm sure there, there wouldn't have been a, an unhappy face in the camp whenever he came on off the bench. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, you say how long he's been around and it's really just him and him and Gilroy are the longest serving players. Players now, there has been so many young players blooded that the value of having somebody like Luke Marshall, whose experience with Ulster goes all the way back to that last sort of, if you want to use their terminology, a team that challenges for championships in that sort of 11 to 14 era, or well, 15, I suppose, to be fair. And that's great experience to have. Like we, um, you know, you mentioned that Dan McFarland clearly likes him and he threw him back in, if you remember, into that quarterfinal against Leinster. When he'd been out for a long time, that was the first game that he ever played for uh, for Dan McFarland, having done the ACL originally against the Ospreys in John O'Gibbs' last game. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do see a decent bit of him, certainly in the weeks to come. Well, we will leave Stormers talk in the past for now, as Ulster are doing. They have moved on to Pretoria, both uh, literally and metaphorically. They are now preparing for a game against the Bulls on Saturday. But just before we do get to talking about that game, I'll revisit Donald's question that we, we asked there with relation to Luke Marshall. What do you read into the players not brought to South Africa? Because we didn't get a chance last week to, to look at the squad as a whole. There are some notable players that, weren't brought uh, Jack McGrath being one Robert Balakoon being the other as, as the only of the the Ireland selection not being brought to South Africa uh, Donald mentions Angus Curtis there but I think we've covered why he he hasn't travelled um, John Andrew was another one who, who was notable for his absence um, have you heard anything about him? I suppose they're just going to bring three hookers. You know, they want to give Tom Stewart minutes. They've got Bradley Roberts back from Wales. And Rob's obviously the starter. You don't want to bring, I don't think in these instances, too many players because if somebody's obviously, like Cape Town, I'm sure I've never been, but I'm sure it's a lovely place to go. But you don't want to bring players when there's very little chance of them playing. So if they've decided that their three hookers are those three guys... Is there any point of making John Andrew fly 12 hours across the world and 12 hours back if he's not going to play? I think he'd quite enjoy Cape Town. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate that if it hadn't have been Cape Town, it maybe it would have been a better example if it was somewhere else. But um... If it was Bloemfontein, he definitely wouldn't have wanted to go. <laughs> but I, I do find it interesting that Tom Stewart travelled ahead of John Andrew because, look, we, we know that they think very highly of, of Tom Stewart within the Ulster setup. And he had a great carry in the build-up to Reed's non-try. I thought he, his burst off the back of that mall was superb, really got them on the front foot. But for someone who has dealt with a lot of injury problems, and given that John, and, and I, I mean that from a perspective of he, he hasn't played a lot of rugby this year, you know, he's only just broken into the squad and, gotten a bit of regular game time with Ulster. And the fact that John Andrew has been performing quite well over the Six Nations period, for them to suddenly decide to bring Tom Stewart ahead of John Andrew is a big call. And it's maybe a call that signifies something going forward that they maybe think, is Tom Stewart actually ready to start stepping up into a bigger role, especially looking ahead to next season whenever Bradley Roberts leaves? Like, I think we've long heard about Tom Stewart and, you know, use that phrase, next cab off the rank. Um, injuries have obviously hampered him. But two weeks ago, so yeah, after the Leinster game, I asked Dan about the impact that he's made recently and um, how he's progressing. And he does still seem to be really, uh, really impressing the coaching staff. And as you say, he made another good cameo there on uh, Saturday. And it is going to be a big thing. Like we've talked all sort of season about John Andrew and, how well we thought he played last year and the fact that he didn't seem to be anywhere near as involved this season. But it is going to be important for Tom Stewart. You know, we've talked about James McCormick as well, having played for the under-20s, because there are going to be minutes behind Rob Herring next season, and especially, obviously, during the international windows where there might not be as many games, but there'll still be games either side where you would expect Rob maybe not to play, like as we saw during the Six Nations where he 
basically this was the first game I think he played since the Claremont game in January. What about the rest of the squad? Any any other questions that you had? The the only one, the only other one I really had was uh McGrath not going at loose head, but I understand there is quite a bit of rotation at loose head at the moment. And the fact that Reed goes probably backs up this uh so you know Tom Stewart going trying to give some of the younger guys a bit of a an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I suppose we've already seen uh, seen the benefit of that with Callum Reed getting minutes. Like, you know, you have to look at this as what it was. No disrespect to anyone that was involved, but this wasn't a first choice team. Like, we're not talking about Toulouse in a Champions Cup knockout. I don't think we'll see a first choice team this weekend either. Kind of well, a mix and match. Yeah. So, like, obviously, we can't see a first choice team because we're Republicans in Belfast. So, I suppose somebody like Callum Reed will take an awful lot more from a trip to South Africa, a first sort of touring experience than somebody like Jack McGrath. He's been all over the world with Ireland and even the Lions would, you know, and, you know, we heard Mike Laurie during last week talking about the sort of value of their last trip to South Africa for guys like him and James Hume when they were just new into the squad. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was an element of the thinking behind bringing a few of the younger guys as well. The thing that I read most into what Michael Lowry has taken from South Africa is the fact that there's a lot of red meat and they're very much enjoying the barbecues and fries that they're being given. So um, well, that should be no surprise to anyone that, uh, that rugby players have taken the advantage to uh, or taken the opportunity to uh, go ahead and have a couple of steaks. Just before we go on to talk about the Bills game, Ulster have released an injury update ahead of the game. Uh, the only injury update that they have is that Greg Jones has fractured his thumb. He will be heading back to Belfast to get a second opinion on it, uh, but it looks like it might need some kind of surgery. So uh, we wish him all the best. Um, the Bills game itself is a reunion with a rather familiar face. Mr. Marcel Kutzia, I'm sure, will be involved in some shape or form for for the Bulls against his former employers. I'm sure he wouldn't miss that one. And will not be involved in their media rotations anyway. They've already <laughs> made it clear that we will not be speaking before the game. That sounds like you've sent an email to someone. To be fair, I got a very swift response saying no. A much swifter response than normal saying no. But uh... did you did you not put on your your best behavior and say, Oh, I promise I won't ask him about this, this, and this? Well, I feel like I would have made the interview slightly redundant. Probably ask him about those barbecue sticks. As for the game itself, one o'clock on Saturday at Loftus Versfeld. We're probably looking at a slightly bigger challenge for Ulster this week than what they got last week. Um, Johnny, what have you made of the Bulls so far this season? I suppose, like everybody, I thought they would be a bit better at the start like I remember watching that game against Leinster and being like you know if this is the best that South Africa has to offer it uh, the end of season isn't going to be too different to uh, the ends of seasons past but I don't know what do you think I'm not convinced that they are the best South African team on the basis of what we've seen over the last two months or so but I think they do represent a very typically South African challenge, if that makes sense, because I do think that they are perhaps the most powerful of the South African franchises. The way this season has kind of worked is the South African sides have all kind of had their moments in the sun, for want of a better phrase. Like, you know, they've they've all had those moments where you think, oh, this this is the real South African team that we expected to see. And then they'll have another week and you'll go, well, what's that about? Like, I was, I've been really impressed with the Sharks for most of this season. And then they went and lost at home to Edinburgh last week, which is completely against what we thought. Like, I think everyone sort of expected that if, if any of the South African teams were going to lose at home first, it would probably be the Lions, not the Sharks. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the Lions, like, definitely looks like the worst of the bunch when they were in the Northern Hemisphere, but I've actually had some good good results since they've been back home and I've also been some of the other South African sides as well but you know the Bulls are as you say I think probably going to add a little bit more power to that that pack than what we saw from the Stormers you know the Stormers were very back row oriented like you, you could see their game plan very early on they did target the breakdown as much as 
Marcel is obviously going to have a big impact in the back row. I think you're probably going to see much more of a driving forwards game as opposed to a technical forwards game from the Bulls. And then we obviously know about the backs that they have, Cornell Hendricks, Lionel McCoy, um, guys who can tear you apart at, at will, but it's certainly going to be a bigger test. And I think this this is probably the game that's going to test Ulster's fitness a bit more because whenever you're playing at the altitude of Pretoria, where you have slightly less oxygen to deal with, uh, where your opponents are definitely better accustomed to the conditions, this is the game where probably in that fourth quarter of the game, you're probably going to see Ulster starting to flag a bit, and it all depends on how well they can pace themselves throughout the game and if they can even afford to pace themselves throughout the game. Um, so... I'd say if you're looking at the game where you're going to get a real test of how Ulster have acclimatized to South Africa, this is probably going to be the one that will really give us a, an indication. Yeah, obviously the uh, the altitude element is a massive one. Like we spent an awful lot of time with Ulster last week talking about how they were acclimatizing to the heat and then really it looked like they were the ones, or not looked like, they were the team finishing stronger. So they were obviously grand in that regard with the heat. But I think, and again, maybe you're probably able to speak to this more than I can, given that I've never been to South Africa, but that the altitude will be a different uh, a different kettle of fish this week, perhaps. You were just mentioning the heat there. Like It was 22 degrees in Cape Town last week. It's, it was supposed to be 28 degrees in Pretoria on Saturday, so it's going to be even worse, <laughs> which is going to make things even more fun. It's going to be a real battle hardener uh, for the European last 16 game against Toulouse a week later, that's for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting, I think, to see how Ulster approach even selection with that in mind, because... I don't think it would be any disaster if they were to lose this week. And I well, think it, it wouldn't be a disaster if they lost this week if they won next week. <laughs> well, sorry, yes. Um, but without the clairvoyance to know if uh, one will impact the other, I suppose what you're asking is how much do you, you know, how much would you empty the tank this week knowing that? what is to date the biggest game of your season is seven days and a 12-hour flight away from that, you know? This is the point of the season where you have to actually, you have to actually start thinking tactically in terms of what games do you target and what games do you not? Because Ulster are in a position where, provided they don't completely fall away in the last few weeks of the season, they're going to be in the playoffs of the URC. We know they want top two in order to have home quarterfinal and home semifinal and like they're they're not going to start throwing away games at the detriment of that but at the same time you've also got to look long term you know if you lose this game but you beat Toulouse and you maybe finish third in the URC is that an acceptable trade-off because you keep going in two competitions if you win this one and you take another massive step towards the top two in the URC, but you then go out in Europe to Toulouse. Are you okay with that? Because you're now effectively on your way to home advantage throughout the knockouts. It, it depends how Ulster see this. Personally, I do think that they are a team now who probably should. I, I don't think they're at the stage yet where they are legitimate contenders to win two trophies. But I think in order to start sending a statement around Europe, I think they maybe should be in a position where they should start to strategize so that they are trying to go deep into competitions or they're at least saying that, that we are putting a little bit of priority on making sure we're ready for our European games and not just focusing on the league. So interesting sort of mindset from Ulster and it all depends how Dan McFarland and his coaching staff are looking at sort of the end game of the season and what way they want to appropriate their resources over the next few weeks. And I suppose mentally it comes down to whether, do you want Leinster to win this week or not? That's really the debate, isn't it? Like, do you want Leinster to beat Munster so that you wrap up second or are you still chasing top spot? I think the fact that Leinster are the team above them matters because if it was, say, 
a, a team from anywhere else but Ireland, I think you'd probably want to be focusing on top spot because that means you would have to travel for the final if it ended up being yourself seed number one v seed number two. But because it's Leinster, if it's a Leinster-Ulster final, you'd be down the Aviva Stadium where you'd probably be if you were top seeds anyway. It just means you're treated as the away team in the final. So I think, yes, you want Leinster winning this. I think you want Leinster to keep Munster down so that you get second, knowing that if you finish second, it makes a difference to who you play in the knockouts, but it doesn't make a difference to where you play in the knockouts because if it finishes, if, if the season finished exactly where it is now, Ulster would have two games at, or at, uh, at Ravenhill and then they would have one game at the Aviva if they were to go and win the competition. If they finished top, they would have two games at Ravenhill and one game at the Aviva. It just changes which dressing room you're in in the final and that's it. So with that in mind, my guess is that what you know what I'm saying about not losing being or losing not being a disaster this week is that there may be some kind of acceptance that the best scenario for Ulster is to uh, not pile all of their resources into this game in the knowledge that they probably think that Leinster are going to be favourites to beat Munster and then Ulster could now obviously it's not it's not a three horse racer but that Ulster could then still be in a relatively strong position to finish second, even with losing both games in South Africa. It's it's more about bringing guys in who you need to get back in the team, guys who didn't play last week, like Hume, Henderson, um, just making sure that they're back in the in the provincial swing of things so that they're ready to go for, for Toulouse. But- yeah, exactly. I think it's, a, it's not so much about what's your best opportunity to win this game. It's about making sure that everybody who you need to be primed for Toulouse is as primed as they need to be so that game is one o'clock UK time on Saturday Ulster versus the Bulls at Loftus Versfeld you can follow the game on the Belfast Telegraph website I will be live blogging it myself before we go we have to mention the Ireland woman who got their Six Nations campaign sorry the TikTok Six Nations campaign uh, something I never thought I would have to say uh, underway at the weekend, a disappointment for Greg McWilliams girls. They lost 27-19 to Wales at the RDS Arena. It had all looked pretty good for, for Ireland for a while, but a late double from Donna Rose for Wales earned them a comeback win. Johnny, what did you make of it? We all know coming into this that Ireland aren't really in a position to win the tournament. Uh, and... To be honest, they are lagging behind quite a few of the other nations just in terms of no professional contracts and uh, even in terms of preparation of of their squad. What did you make of it with all that under consideration? Yeah, I actually thought they started really, really well. Like the uh, There was a lot to like about what they did in the first half. Neve Jones, formerly of Malone, now Gloucester, uh, I thought started really, really well. The... Linda Jugang try was really, really well put together piece of play. The offloading game was working. Just an awful lot to like. And then, you know, you mentioned that sort of professional contracts thing, obviously Wales having having 12 pro players and just, I suppose, their superior power really just told in the end. Like, we all know that Wales are a powerful team up front, but it just really, really came to the fore in the second half. And I think they were just able to wear Ireland down to the point where I think they, you know, they deserve their win. I don't think Ireland can have too many complaints about the result in the end, but going to France now next week, it's, you know, it's all about building on the positives of what they put out there in the RDS on Saturday, working on those rough edges of the performance. But like you said there at the start there, I suppose framing it against the fact that France is going to be a very, very different challenge because when you talk about France and you talk about Ireland it is comparing apples to oranges really in terms of where the games are coming from Yeah, France opened their tournament with a 39-6 win over Italy Whenever you look at the tournament moving forward we've seen the gap open up between England and France at the top 
and the other four teams. And I, I know that, that Wales have obviously taken steps to to address that. But do you feel like it's almost becoming too many tournaments of you know England and France competing for the title and the other four just competing to be to be the best of the rest? And like how, how do you bridge that gap? Is it is it just going professional or is there just way more that needs to be done? Well, all these things are, you know, if we compare it to the men's game, these things are all cyclical and we can get bogged down in talking about Ireland and, you know, how are Ireland going to compete with France and England when they have so many more players to pick from and their domestic leagues are stronger and so on and so on and so forth. And then Ireland and Wales especially punch above their weight. But I think, as you say there, the professional contract is a huge thing because you, you just it all boils down to the time commitments that their players are able to devote to being international rugby players and the time commitments that the time constraints that Irish women's rugby players have to deal with in terms of having full-time jobs while also trying to play to an international standard. Like it's, you know, it's like anything. If something is your job and something is something that you have to do around your job, you're going to be able to do it to two completely different levels. It's good to see Neve going over and being involved with Gloucester because that's obviously a big step for her and the likes of Nicola Friday going over and playing for Exeter Chiefs as well. And um, as you mentioned, Linda Jugang there, who's away over to, I believe it's Claremont, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. She's playing with. So it's good to see that some of them are, are taking those steps and hopefully they'll be There'll be more in the future. So yes, Ireland's second game is against France on Saturday at quarter past two. And that is all the time we have for today. We will be back again next week. We'll look back on the second game of Ulster's South African trip. We will be looking back on Ireland's game against France. And we will be looking ahead to that massive first leg of the Heineken Cup last 16 against Toulouse in France. And we'll be looking forward to a trip away for the first time in a good while or a trip away to France for the first time in a good while as well spoiled if you're ever looking forward to our first trip away in a long time whenever we were both in Northampton like two months ago yeah and I got COVID from it uh, <laughs> hopefully this trip goes a bit better um, but until then Jonathan thank you for joining me as always cheers thank you very much and thank you very much to all of you for listening we will see you next week cheers.